I believe that my uh, my psychedelic use did give me a unique access to uh, being able to get the the paint and colors for my for my art. Hi, welcome to Town Hall, a black queer podcast, the podcast where we journey through a theme by sharing stories, music, poetry, and art of varying depth and hilarity. Today's episode is substance. Um, and by substance, I don't mean like I don't mean like being a person of substance. <laughs> I mean like I mean like mood altering substances. I'm talking about the alcohols, the mollies, drugs, the, the honey, de- drugs, the, the cuckoo cabbage, the devil's lettuce. Um, you know, taking a trip without getting on a plane, honey, Molly Cyrus. Those are the <laughs> things I'm talking about on this day. But have you ever been high? I don't know. You never smoked a joint in college. Um, I smoked a joint. I didn't smoke a whole joint, though. Um, I, it's, giving, it's giving Bill Clinton. I didn't inhale. I know. Well, I had a lot of tooth pain. I had a tooth ache and was very terrible. And I was with my friends, and they were, like, trying to give me all these... And I was, like, really desperate. Like, v- the worst tooth pain I had experienced in the... How old were you? I don't know, in 18, 19, 20? Something like that. Um, you were... Oh, you were... Oh, I was an adult. I was an adult in college age I, time. For some reason, I thought you said it happened in 1920. I was like, what? I was like, that doesn't make sense, Pep. That does not make sense. I did not say that. <laughs> um, I was college age. It was in, I was college age. Um, <laughs> anyway, I had a tooth pain. It was like really, really hurt. It was like lots. It was terrible. And I, I, w- I was extremely desperate. Obviously, I was taking as many, like, Tylenol and things that I could. And it was just, it was at the point where, like, Tylenol is not working. And so I was with my friends who were, you know, getting high. They they loved, they were always high. And The stoners love who, st- baby, the stoners, it, when they be their personality, it'd be their personality, honey. And they were like, you know, well, for, I'd always heard if you had, a, like, a toothache, or I guess when babies are teething, I'd always heard that, like, you know, old home remedy that you put rub some whiskey or booze or something on yeah, the whiskey. baby's thumbs. To- you don't you don't hot box the baby, <laughs> right? Um, and so I tried that on my tooth. That didn't work, and I was like, "This ain't gonna work." And then I try. Um, and then I was like, "Well, my friends were like, well, take some, smoke some weed. It'll help with the pain." And I was like, "Uh, all right." Um, and I took l- literally one hit. I don't even think I, I don't know if I inhaled or not. It, I didn't feel any better. I didn't feel any worse. I just felt, well, like that didn't work. I mean, at that point I was in so much pain, nothing. Like I, I wasn't trying to get high. There was no, like, I'm, I wasn't like. I'm imagining 19 year old, uh, peppermint a, writhing in pain, trying to smoke a joint, looking for some instant satisfaction. Um, you know, uh, marijuana, it's one of those drugs that's been marijuana has been decriminalized in a lot of places here in these United States of America and around the world for that matter. Yes. And what I found, what I heard recently in New York, because there's so many like smoke shops, head shops um, opening up all around. I'm sure there are in LA and everywhere else as well. But you get new, like I walked down the street and there's like five, it's like definitely more smoke shops than Starbucks. You know what I mean? 
And um, and so I was thought that was really interesting. So my friends and I were talking about it, and they were saying, yeah, the people even even in like the white neighborhoods, they're all black owned. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And they told me because the uh, priority for opening these businesses and making money off of this now goes to people who were unjustly prosecuted or really or for I mean, I guess it was just in their mind in those times, but to mostly people of color um, who had been uh, prosecuted uh, uh, for like you know, marijuana possession charges. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I had a short stint in college as a stoner. I was never really much of a stoner, but I did have a short stint in college where I decided to get high a lot. And baby, I, one of these, right now, like when I, smoke, when I used to smoke weed with my black friends, when, the first time you smoke weed with your white friends, it is a different story. They be, I don't know what they be smoking, but it, at least the white people that like, my, my black friends like passing joints around. Like we were like passing joints. Baby, we went to go smoke with these the fucking rednecks. We went to these rednecks house and smoke. First of all, there is a six foot bong. Like literally, a there was a literal. I'm not making this up. A literal. Oh, yeah, I feel like bongs are definitely something bong. that I've only seen with white folks. And there was a hydro I bong. You ever heard of a hydro bong? I think or I, grab, I don't or, know. Or, or I, I've bong? heard of bubbling, 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 bubbling. Basically, I've, I've a gravity bong before. is when they take like a like a like a five gallon bucket. It, it, they these white folks be turning. It, I've seen white people smoking out of apples, six foot bong. I've seen them smoking gravity out of bong. apples too because they know and, they're not going to get caught. They ain't going to jail. Girl, so when I got <laughs> so when I got high with them, I was like, I remember being, I remember smoking my, with my black friends, being like, oh, I'm I'm high, and then like it wears off. Baby, I smoke with these white folks. I was high. I'm not kidding you for three days. I was like, I can't function. I can't do this. Is crazy. And I didn't have no toothache. I was just trying to have fun. I remember driving my car. And when I realized I was like, I have, I can't smoke weed. I was driving my car, and I was trying to go to Crystal's because I was hungry. And I had my, I was sitting. This is the steering wheel. I was like this on the steering wheel. And I was driving. I looked down. Is that a Crystal's? Is kind of like White Castle. I oh. looked down at the speedometer. Mary, when I uh-huh. tell you I was literally driving five miles an hour on the freeway. And you thought you were doing I thought something. I was speed racer. I thought I was going <laughs> Mach 5. I was you like, I am you were doing something. I was like, bitch, I'm uh, Peyton Man- or Peyton, not Peyton Manning. Who's the Ed, Ed, Ed Hardy? Petty, Petty, Tom Ed Petty. Hardy. I, was like, Tom, some... I'm Tom, I was like, I'm Tom Petty. Tom Petty's a and, musician. Well, who's Girl, the, you high now? You, are you sure you didn't smoke nothing now? Isn't there a race car driver <laughs> named something Petty? I don't know, but Tom Petty's a musician. Wait, uh, wait, because there's wait. Uh, Tom Petty, Petty and the Heartbreakers. Race car. His name is um Richard Petty. Richard Petty. Oh, because there's a color <laughs> called Petty Blue. Because uh, you know, Petty Blue is the color of Richard Petty's car. Anyway. <clears throat> so I, I actually, um, I, I don't drink or do any drugs at all. I'll tell you a story about some drugs. Um, my, I had some, this thing, I was, a, my friends were definitely potheads. And um, I was up at their place once when they first, it was, you know, several years ago when weed delivery was like a new thing. Like, I guess you, you always knew which corner to go to if you're looking for it. But like the, having the person having like a pager or the number and delivering over to the place 
was like something that became new to us when we moved it into Harlem in the um, what year early is this? 2000s. Like Hotel, 99, yeah. maybe 99. Mm-hmm. Um, and back and until then, before then, I'd always known my friends to go to the weed dealer to get what they needed wherever it was. But this was like, he was a delivery person, um, which I'm sure is like probably the norm now. Um, and so he would deliver it to them. And sometimes I'd be there, sometimes I wouldn't, but they would always be smoking. And and then they were like so stoked. I guess that's, is that a pun? Isn't stoked? Anyway, they were so excited. Oh, I think it's toking. It's toking. Oh, toke. They were so excited in the beginning when they were like, oh, dealer coming out, d- delivery. And that was like great for them. So like that was their new guy and they were so super excited and it started. And then like, I swear, six months later, they had gotten, they went from smoking on Fridays to smoking on Fridays and Saturdays, to smoking on Friday, Saturday, Sundays, to smoking mm-hmm. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So six months <clears throat> down the line of the dealer coming over, what probably was at least a few times a week or every day, you know, whatever, uh, they were um, trying to get in touch with him. And they were like, what happened? They can't, he like disappeared. And turns out he was in jail. And another person that they knew that also bought from the same dealer was like, yeah, he was lacing our um, weed with crack. And so like they were addicted, they weren't addicted to the weed. They were getting high on that chronic. If you know what I mean. I think that's the word chronic. If it's like crack in the, at least that's what I remember. I thought chronic was just was just a kind of meat. We obviously we, we sound so whatever. Unhip. There was crack. I know there was crack in the damn weed, and they were smoking it like it was crack in the weed. Yeah, the, yeah. Chronic <laughs> is just a, it's just a slang for marijuana. But that is uh, why they were they were like, man, well, what I don't is, know what, what is it crack is. in the weed. They That's were like, this is just this is just such good weed. <laughs> they were like, this is the best <laughs> weed ever. I don't know what this guy has some great, great the, this honey, stuff, they just thought he was really the best, good. And he would give it to them from the beginning. Not sprinkling weed in the crack. I'm dead. I'm honey, dead. He was like, I'm gonna make sure these motherfuckers only buy from me. Wow, um, Nini. Yeah. So, so that was the that was that. When so I today's you, episode is obviously about substance. Yeah. When I met you, I remember uh you told for some reason within the first day of me meeting you, you told me that you don't drink. And I thought you were like in AA. You were like, I don't drink that all the time. You know, uh, they really do. They I mean, especially when we're working in nightlife and out at the clubs and people are oftentimes trying to, you know, buy you a drink or have a drink with you or toast or whatever. And I'm not like I'll do a toast um, even with a drink. I mean, you know, I won't drink it, but I'll do the toast and, you know, I'll pretend like I'm taking a sip. But I used to get drinks. People used to buy drinks for me all the time in the clubs and i used to get so good at pouring a drink out or a shot out you know like behind my i was like i've seen you i've I've seen you do it yeah i pour it in the plant pour it under the thing poured it i pour it anywhere underneath where the bar thing is and i would be like "Mm, have another because i i also would it was a bit of a racket i would work with the bartenders and be like why don't you buy us some shots and then, you know, because then the bartenders like that because then you 
are they're there making are more money. Gallons of Jack Daniels under the stage at Barracuda <laughs> to this day, sitting like like it like in a fine oak barrel, just soaking under the stage. If you bought peppermint a shot in 2010, it is still under the stage at Barracuda to this day. It doesn't mean I wasn't grateful though. I was very appreciative. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I, well, I, I thought you were in recovery because I, I'm in recovery, and I remember, I, I think, I, I think I offered by your drink, and you were like, "Oh, I don't drink," and I was like, "Oh, well, you're, you're like me, you're in recovery," and you were like, "No, I don't have a problem like you." No, you didn't say that. I didn't you were like, say you're that. The, you said you're the one with the problem, drunky. You're the one, and then you, now, and then you now, threw a drink a in shot. my face, <laughs> and my mouth was open. No. Um, <laughs> I would never do that. I would never do no, that. Would never no, no, I'm not do that. Um, I, I, have, I, I haven't been drinking yeah. for about maybe like uh, 15 years now. And when I moved to New York City, it would it would really it would really blow people's minds that I that I don't drink. And and I stop saying I stop saying I don't drink. When people offer me a drink, I just start saying something that will just kind of get it done faster. I just say I'm not drinking tonight. Which, by the way, is true. I'm not it's, drinking it's, tonight. That's the quickest way. Then then it shuts the conversation off. Like they whatever the reason is, they don't even know. That's why I usually say that too. I'm not drinking tonight. But that's usually. Because now these days I usually go more to like restaurants and not places where people are like trying to get me shots. But like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not drinking tonight. Cover your glass. And they're like, all right, bitch, moving on. You know? Yeah, people, people, no one asks you questions when you say I'm not drinking tonight. They just go, oh, you're just making good decisions for your evening. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I, I decided to stop drinking and doing all the stuff um, when when I was uh, 22 years old. I, it was right before I moved. I moved. I actually moved to New York City when I was still counting days. I was like 30 days sober when I moved to New York City, which is kind of bananas. And mm-hmm. um, for me, I, the reason why I stopped drinking was because in doing drugs was because I saw how it affected people in my family, and I could I could realize even from an early age that. I was not drinking the same way that my friends were drinking. Like I have some friends who would drink like on Friday and Saturday and they were just honestly good. They were done. Like on Sunday, they did not need to drink more, but I was needing to on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, into Thursday, and then ramping up for Friday when I would really go crazy. And I also, um, it, it, I didn't realize until like years into sobriety that most people don't have, most people haven't blacked out. If I was drinking, Ten times, I was blacking out eight of those times. I know that I'm a lightweight because I've obvi- I have ingested alcohol before, and so cheap when date. I was um, I'm a cheap. I guess I am a cheap date. Yeah, because I it seems extreme. Like even now, if like there's like a little something in a in a in a dessert or something, I tell you, I can feel it. Like I start feeling warm. And like giggly, and I know that I'm getting drunk off of like this like rum cake, off of uh, vanilla extracts <laughs> in a cake. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I I was in um, Puerto Rico at a wedding at my cousin's wedding, and they were um, you know everybody was there, everybody was drinking, and I was 15 or 16. I was young in, in high school, and um, we uh, I was just dancing, and the grandmother on the other side of the family. Um, came up to me and was like, hell, I'll get you a drink. She got me a, a Coca-Cola. And I was like, okay, great. And she got me another Coca-Cola. And then the Coca-Cola turned into rum and Coke. And then, and I drank it and I was like, oh. And then and just like, rum. Okay. And then, and then, and then, the, it, and and then, then the, it was just, and then the cork laced weed. And then next thing you know, you're on methamphetamines. Is that not it? No. Uh, she, she, it went from rum and Coke to just rum. And, um, and Wait, I, really? No, yeah, yeah, it's the truth. Um, and if you didn't notice, 
I did notice, I didn't really, I didn't object at the time. So I was like dancing and dancing and sweating and like sweating so much. And I'm dancing and I was just dancing and dancing and dancing. And I was like showing off and like I had all this energy. And then um, the next, I don't know that I blacked out or not, but I I don't remember much. And then the next morning I, um, I was in this, be- it was like beautiful, sunny Puerto Rico. And I like started to open my eyes and we were in this, um, this like countryside sort of place called Samana Grande and it's like in the mountains and everything. And so there's like horses and chickens running around the yard. And so like, I like was started to wake up and I look out the window and honey, the sun, the bright Puerto Rican sun came into my eye and sliced my brain in half. And I was like, Oh, and we had to go. So I don't remember. We had to go into town and do something. And I was like the worst person the whole you day. You were hungover. And, and, and she told us like, oh, you have a hangover. I was like, I was over. I wasn't hungry. I didn't feel like doing nothing. I was in a nasty attitude mood. I was like, I had sunglasses on. I was like ab- absolutely fabulous. Very yeah, hangovers much. are hangovers really <laughs> suck. And on that note, <laughs> today our our topic is is uh substances. <laughs> it is. And uh you know, it's it's really timely. I'm probably exposing a little more than I should here today, but I, you know, we all I don't really have much of a relationship uh with things like with with hard drugs, although I've worked in New York City nightlife in the 90s. So I've seen pretty much everything being made, ingested, sold. And unfortunately, there were several um, over overdoses uh, in the clubs mm-hmm. that I worked in in the 90s. Uh, that was a big thing when the synthetic drugs were coming around. And so people were, there was, it was nearly weekly that, you know, there were like, they would turn on the lights at the end of the night and there would be a dead body in in the club of like thousands of people in the club and like, you know, dancing around a dead body and nobody knew. Um, but I do have a, a relationship with alcohol, not because I was a drinker, but al- alcoholism probably like many American families runs in my family. And I've seen many a Christmas trees f- flying out the window and across the room. Um, mm. And, but I have a friend right now who's, struggling right now. And so I'm thinking about him as we're recording this uh, episode. He he relapsed after uh, a year and he's public about it. Um, after a year of sobriety and he had a, he had a pretty, um, he had a relapse last year. And now this year he had, a, I guess, a pretty intent, intense, nearly week and a half relapse. And so I'm thinking about you, Jay. Um, and I'm, pulling for you yeah really uh yeah beating drug and alcohol abuse is really hard it is very very hard mm-hmm. all right so shall we get into this episode let's get into it i also want to say that i'm really we we um source our guests uh for each episode mostly from the people who listen to us our supporters our fans 
And we're always really grateful when people share their personal stories with us on this podcast. And I know that subjects like this might be difficult to talk about, maybe not, but could be difficult or sort of deeper to talk about than, than others. And so I'm just really grateful for everyone that we had on the episode today. So our first person sharing their story with us is Armand Fields, who is a non-binary actor and drag performer, most known for their work as Busey Horwood in the Peacock reboot of Queer as Folk. My drag daughter, Johnny Sibley, is also, was also on the show. Uh, and as Reese on the L Word, Generation Q. Um, so here is Armand's story. So I'm an actor. I started off on stage in Chicago. From there, I booked my first big TV role, which was King on Work in Progress. I've been on The Shy a couple of episodes. I did this really great movie on Freeform called The Thing About Harry. Uh, and that was written and directed by Peter, why am I blanking on his last name, from Queer's Folk. He played Emmett. But um, I say that because it was great because then I was on Queer's Folk, the reboot on Peacock. I played Bussy, uh, Bussy Horwood. Um, and I was sort of the drag queen matriarch of New Orleans. Uh, and it was inspired by the lovely Chi Chi Devane, rest in peace. So I have nine years of sobriety um, and that's real sobriety, no, no, uh, no alcohol and just smoking weed. So, uh, you're right. So nine years of sobriety, free of any mind or mood altering substances. This disease, and I call it a disease because it's a disease of the mind, body, and spirit. But it um, it's tricky because it'll lie to you and tell you that like some things are okay, but like this isn't. You know. So I was, you know, I had kicked. You know, my my drugs of choice was alcohol, vodka, cocaine, um, and poppers. My standards were dropping at a much faster rate than I could keep up with. You know, that was the initial thing. Things that I found myself saying that I would never do or like people that I would never hang out with, I found myself hanging out with those people. I found myself doing those things. You know, mine is a genetic disease. My dad is a an, a drug and uh, substance abuser, um, and he's high functioning. My mom, she has her addictive qualities. Um, so it was only fitting that it happened for me. And you know, um, being a young black queer person in Oklahoma City, you don't find people like you, <laughs> you know, and so, you, so you're sort of sifting through it, figuring it out. Of course, my family was not okay with me being gay. Uh, and so the crowds that I found myself around were, you know, like young, rich, white kids in Oklahoma City. So <laughs> that's who I befriended because they were like, readily acceptable accepting of like me being gay and so you know you find access to certain things through them I came from a low-income family in Oklahoma City uh, and then I went to art school private art school in Chicago and that is where like you know things started to increase a little bit more as far as like drinking goes and then I had to leave school because it got expensive and I couldn't afford it uh, but I stayed in Chicago and started pursuing my acting career. And 
that wasn't unfolding the way I wanted it to. And I was working in the restaurant industry because that's what you do as an actor. Um, and just working in restaurant industries, drugs and alcohol and drinking is so, it's like part of the lifestyle, you know? And that's when I started experimenting with Coke and just like doing it more frequently. And it was towards the end of my drinking and drinking career. I developed a relationship with a friend uh, who I thought was straight, but was on the DL. And uh, he was also a drug dealer and dying of cancer. Uh, So it was like the recipe for the perfect storm. It was Halloween 2009. And I was working at this restaurant and I was part-time at American Apparel. And that's part of the story. But um, I was working at this restaurant and I was close, set to close Saturday night. And it was the Saturday night of Halloween when everyone does like partying. And I was supposed to work the next day, like a double on Sunday, like work the brunch and then work dinner. And I was like, I'm not doing shit. I'm going to go home after this Saturday night dinner shift and just like chill and be ready for tomorrow. I get to work. One of my coworkers comes in. She's like crying and like upset. I was like, girl, what's wrong? And she was like, nothing. I was supposed to go to this party with the other coworkers, like my other coworkers. And she was like, and this guy who's supposed to go with me is ghosting me. I don't even think ghosting was a word then, but he ghosted her. Um, and she was like, we're supposed to go. And like, my costume isn't going to make sense anymore. She was the leg lamp from a Christmas story. She brings me his costume and it's the fucking bunny pajama onesie from that Ralphie wears that he gets as a Christmas gift. So I was like, okay, I'll wear it. And I had, I think I had these glasses, like glasses like these. So I was like, these are the perfect Ralphie glasses. Um, and It was one of those like suits where it has like the footies and everything. So I was like, my dumb ass. I'm like, well, since I'm going to be here tomorrow, let me just leave my work clothes here and I'll be back, you know, in the morning and I'll change into them. So I leave my work clothes there and I go out with her. And just like any addict, we're like, I'm only going to have one and I'm not going to do Coke. So then I have like a couple of drinks. And then she buys Coke. And then I was like, uh, can I have some? (laughs) And then fast forward to me being like passed out in the coat room closet of this party, this like warehouse party. And so I'm like in the, in a bunny pajama costume, mind you. Oh, it gets better. Uh, none of my coworkers wanted to leave the party. They were like, but you have to work tomorrow. And they're like, we got to get you home. And there was this girl there that I knew. And she was like, well, I'm leaving. So I'll take him home. She puts me in a cab with her, tries to get me out of the car. I don't move. And I'm like, so just like fucked up. And so she takes me back to her house and she takes me back to her house, puts me on a couch with a beer. I was like, why did I, why did you give me more to drink? Pass out, wake up at the time that I'm supposed to be at work. I have by now, this was also another thing that like, I'm sure some people can relate to, but when you drink and do Coke, you kind of lose all bodily, like, uh, function or I guess uh, control of it. And so I had urinated myself in this bunny pajama costume and I was broke and I don't think even Uber was around then. So I had to take two buses to get home to shower and change and go to work. So I get there. <laughs> like I, I still sh- like 
listen, I called that manager. I was like, I can't come in. And she's like, Armand, don't do this to me. We need you. And like guilted me into coming. And I was like, fuck. And so I like go home, shower. I tried crying. I couldn't cry. My eyes was, I was so dehydrated. And I was on the bus in this urine soaked bunny pajama costume with the footies and all. So <laughs> get home, shower, then go to work. And of course I'm so fucked up still from the night before they like send me home and I get home. And that night they called me to tell me that I was like on probation that same night, American Apparel calls me because I was just like a sales associate. They called me to ask me if I wanted to be promoted <laughs> to a key. I got a promotion. So I was like, well, I mean, this job is like firing me, but this job is giving me a promotion because the person who was a key holder at American Apparel did the exact same thing that I did. And that was their final straw. So they fired him <laughs> and promoted me. So in that time when I got promoted, I had like two weeks of training for the key holder position. So I was like, I'm not going to drink. And I didn't. And I started to notice like little miracles happening. Um, like also believe in like the law of attraction and stuff like that. And the energy you put out is what you get um, back to you. And so I remember like in that two weeks, I didn't have a bed. And someone like, lo and behold, was like getting rid of a bed and asked if I wanted it. And I was like, sure. So I got a bed. <laughs> and it was just like, I just felt back sort of like to who I was in that two weeks. But then of course, like once I finished my training, my coworkers were like, let's go celebrate. And they're like giving me like fucking long on a nice tease. And it was like back off to the races, but it didn't last long. Cause it was like January 8th was the first time that I thought I was getting sober and cut out alcohol and cocaine and everything. Uh, my roommate, up until this moment, she was getting sober and she's a dear friend of mine. And I was going to meetings with her to support her in the rooms. And like, of course I was listening to what people were sharing and I was like, Oh, some of this I can kind of relate to. Um, and my agent at the time, she wanted to do like a check-in at the beginning of the year. So like we sat down and she was just like, there's no reason you shouldn't be a working actor. I was also trying modeling at the end because, girl, that cocaine waist was snatched. <laughs> I was like, bitch, put me on a runway. Um, and so I, uh, I, she was like, there's no reason you shouldn't be working like consistently. What are you doing? And I kind of shared with her all of the drug use, the, the, the sex, because that came because of the drugs and drinking and she was like, I appreciate you sharing that with me. And she was in the program as well. And she was like, I think you should go to a meeting. And I was like, I've been to a meeting. She's like, for you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I literally, after that meeting, she called her sponsor. And I met him up at Hazleton, which is like a rehab center. My foundation at the time was built on sand. Because I, I only got sober so I could have a successful acting career. Which is like funny because it's like. I, you know, it's like God laughs. And I was like, um, so I was like, I can do this. I wasn't ready to accept the 12 step program. I was like, but I don't want to drink anymore. And I was like, then once maybe I get that Oscar or an Emmy, I'll have a glass of champagne. Like in my head, I thought that I would have a, a drink again successfully. Um, but slowly like going to meetings and I started using my church. I was going to like a, um, a Methodist church in Chicago. And I thought like I was using that 
as my like AA or like my program. And that was like supposed to keep me sober. But like, you know, you realize that like this church is just set up with people and people will always kind of let you down, especially if you put them up on a pedestal. Um, like I did with my pastor and I was like, and then so like a year of just being what I call dry because I wasn't doing anything to better myself. I was just not drinking. Um, and I looked at my best friend who was working the program and had a sponsor and working the steps and all this. And I was like, her life had changed so much. And I was like, why hasn't mine changed? And she's like, cause you're not working the steps. So there was an actor who I was like doing a show with and he gifted me um, this book called The Language of Letting Go by Melody Beatty. And that book has got me through so much. I still have that copy. It is missing covers. It is dog-eared, but it's like, I think like it's a true representation of my life and just like me and how I've like, st- I'm still here fucking duct tape and all, like holding my <laughs> seams together and, you know, but it's just like, it got me through so much. That person ended up being my first sponsor like a year and a half later as someone who has been single their whole life and never having a relationship. I turned 40, um, experience in my career field, you know, I have been booked, you know what I mean? But like, yeah, I have had to, had gotten that like big job that kind of changes my life. So like having those like yets, you know what I'm saying? I, 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 I I think or like the enemy in my head tells me like, oh, if you were skinnier or if you were this, like you would have these things. Um, when I thought I was like initially getting sober, but I wasn't drinking. I was doing this internship at a regional theater and um, it was like one of those like internships where you like move there and you're like they put you up and you're just kind of like this underpaid full-time understudy. I was the oldest one of the bunch of interns um, and everyone drank and I didn't. And after shows, like people would hang out and be drinking in bars and going to do that stuff. And I was just, I tried to steer clear from that as long as I could to like solidify my sobriety. But I would go back to my hotel room and be alone and cry <laughs> cry because I was like not making any friends there and like you know the people that I would befriend would be like the older actors who are actually there on contract but then they leave and so I'm just there by myself so I got through it though um and I started to and that's the beauty of the 12-step program is like there's meetings everywhere no matter where you go you can find a meeting and that's where I really started to develop true connections and real relationships and to with people that I still keep in contact with today 10 years later <laughs> you're not alone you are not alone there are people who have gone through what you're going through um that have come out the other side of it and there is there's light you may not see it right now but there's light it can be dark all the time. It's the laws of physics, you know. Um, and, you know, you may not see it, but you can change. Your life can change. And it may not, it's not going to be, and I'm not going to sell you this pipe dream of like, <laughs> once you get sober, everything is like peaches and cream. But it's just like, you know, you have to work for it. 
You have to work for it. You, there's still life. You still have to learn how to live life on life's terms. And, um, but it gets different. It gets, it gets better slightly. You know what I'm saying? Everyone has an idea of what better is, but like it changes for the better. You know, the conversation about psychedelics and how it, uh, people like microdosing and uh, using it to like boost their creativity. Uh, I mean, I can't relate because I feel like if I did psychedelics, I would never come back from a trip. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be on a trip and that, that would just be where I live. I'd be afraid if I do psychedelics, I would unlodge something that I can never put back in place and I will just be. <laughs> nutty as squirrel turd. I believe you. And I can't judge psychedelics. I'm, I'm really pretty, you know me, Bob, I'm very non-judgmental when it comes to drug and alcohol yeah. use and things like that. Like I'm, as long as you can show up to the job, Same. you're all right with me. However, my ex, we were fine. Our <laughs> relationship was fine. Mm-hmm. And then this bitch went and did Something in a damn igloo or something. Ayahuasca, maybe. I don't even know. Honey, he was a different person. after It unlodges something. And For some people. And he said, I had this, I came to this, whatever. I'm like, bitch, I was so mad. I was so mad. He, and then, and then that's... <laughs> then what? He, um, disclosed to me that he, not only did he do the drugs on Saturday... My, mind you, this was Christmas. Christmas. He told me on Christmas that he had done drugs and came to a realization that we shouldn't be in a, together anymore. And that's also a good time to tell me that he's talking to Bella and that he's seeing Bella. Who the hell? I was like, what are you talking? I, I was so mad. Anyway, whatever. So I don't that's really I mean, Bella it. was probably someone he made up in his in his psychic psychedelic. She might have been. Um, no, but that uh, no, but that is that anyway. is absolutely that is that is wild. And that, I mean, but you know, my my best friend um, Monet Change, one, one of my best friends, she swears by psychedelics, and people there are a lot of people who get a lot of uh, use from them. And uh, and Diamond, our our next guest, is one of those people. He he likes to use it to um, to help him with his create with with his creativity. Um, and he is an award winning um, uh, you know recording artist so obviously there's 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 something to it so let's let's listen from um, from Diamond Kalani my name Diamond Kalani I'm a I'm a singer songwriter live entertainer here in Hollywood in in general like any anything that I put into my body I try to uh, me use it and not it use me um, so with psychedelics in particular uh, it's, it's been a very sacred space for me. So it's, uh, I guess the reason I started was to find the different colors to be able to paint. And then as, as I also do the inner work myself, because really I, I believe that's what, uh, what psychedelics were meant for were, you know, not just to be an escape, but to help you, uh, help you repair along the way. I can count on one hand how many DMT experiences that that let me know um, that we were we're not alone <laughs> in you know what we've been conditioned to think and believe and uh, my shroom experiences like I've I've used uh, shrooms as um, you know medicines just like you would an Advil if you have a headache you know you don't take too much but 
you know, to get you through to the next level. There's microdosing, of course. Microdosing has never really been um, been something that I've been consistent with because, like I said, I'll I'll heal myself along the way. Um, so with uh, with I mean, I can't tell you how many shroom adventures I've, I've had, um, but LSD in particular, uh, I've, I've maybe had like ten acid trips my life um but each of them have been very um very sacred very like it's almost like going into going into you know check in with the elders for a second and then okay maybe i don't need to do that for a while a couple months ago i went to mexico um where i was actually in a really uh safe space safe environment with uh, some friends and I, I didn't, it wasn't even like I planned on doing acid that particular weekend. Actually, I was gearing myself up for a mushroom adventure. And I went, went downstairs to, uh, to ask my friend if he wanted to smoke a blunt at like 530 in the morning and watch the sunrise. And he's like, well, you want to take some acid? I was like, wait, this is, you know what? Actually, yeah, the stars are aligned and everything's in the right vibration because I definitely don't want to have a bad trip. <laughs> My friend who was there, um, who gave me the acid, it just so happened that he was a known healer and a shaman. I didn't know this. Like, he was a friend of a friend. And in that trip, it literally felt like I'd known this person for 8,000 years. Like it was, I guess what I, what I found in that was like how we are all connected. We're, we've always all been connected. Every single thing, even this table has the flower of life in it. And we were all like connected from that, from that very first atom. And to, to experience this, this trip with him someone who's pretty much a stranger and still feel like this person has been part of my heart and my heart chakra was wide open at, at one time at one time i i do believe that i i died a spiritual death and met with my elders in between and came back cuz there there was a moment where i'm i'm crying and I feel him come over and he puts his hand on my on my heart and helps me like breathe again. And I I feel that same hand leave, but like another or two other hands come over. And I'm just weeping because like I I know that this is something I know that there were only the two of us there. That experience of knowing that there was a an in-between. I, I believe that in in order to really understand true divinity, you have to understand both sides of the yin and yang. And in that in that space, that in between space, with meeting my elders, um, who were not in any physical form, but in every light form, that that alone tells me that there's there's much more uh there's much to me the word queer is a question mark and a a and it 
excuse and a reason to want to search more and understand more. Like to even put God into a box of he or she is, I think, ignorant because it's omnipotence is what divinity is. You know, it is every, it is every and all, you know. So some would, some would consider uh, good with the bad or what is good and bad. You know, so just the just in knowing that I don't know anything <laughs> because being in that space like um, in in the in-between space with uh, within that trip it's it's like okay well this ain't all just going on in my head I think in in everything there's a medicine like People use cocaine or, or doctors use cocaine in, in practice as well. And, you know, too much of a, a good thing can be bad for you. I believe that that there's a way to, you know, administer things. Like my mom in particular um, was suffering from a lot of depression and anxiety. She was on 12 different medications and finally started using THC that helped her get down to like four and then there were some other things that are going on and i'm like mom maybe you should consider using a little you know psychedelics to help with those those issues as opposed to prozac and you know all these other things that are actually harmful for our bodies that that actually i think those things need to be you know reprimanded more than what's given you know the god-given earth i i believe that my uh my psychedelic use did give me a unique access to uh, being able to get the, the paint and colors for my for my art. The greatest lesson that I would say, especially from the last uh, trip, was to not be afraid, like because all this can be taken from us at any given moment. Um, to hold on to that that joy, that that euphoria, you know, for as much as we as we can. Maybe not for as long as we can, but as much as we can. Access it, you know, whenever you need to. I do hear from my higher power every time I have a psychedelic experience. Like, I, I think that is, that I think psychedelics are one of the gifts that we've been given to, to actually be able to knock on that door of our elders. And there you have Diamond's story. Wow. I mean, I think that's so, I think that's amazing. I, it never occurred to me, like, was microdosing, I know it's a thing now. Was it always a thing? It probably has been a thing, but I think once celebrities started doing it and talking about it, it became like a, a pop culture thing. But the people probably have microdosing for a long time. I mean, they've definitely Which been is, dosing. Is the goal of <laughs> microdosing to be a little high all the time, or is it to like unlodge certain? I don't get it. I'm afraid. I'm terrified. I, I would never microdose I, I ever. Think, I mean, listen. I because I do believe that there's an element to drug use, obviously, or the experience of being high, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whatever, that one must enjoy at some point in the process enough and it and it obviously unlocks certain thoughts feelings behaviors that you may not normally do when you're not using those things so i would as a person who's completely 
ignorant to the to the experience of you actually using any types of substances like that. I would I'm I think it's more than an assumption that like people can very easily use more than they use use enough yeah. to ruin other things in their life. And a lot of times what you hear from that person is I don't have a problem. I don't have a drinking problem. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that while somebody's getting like dragged off to jail because they did, you know, somebody got hurt. A problem. Yeah. I'm not here to condemn anyone. You know, we, I was on Work the World. and one, this, I, I called a bunch of the queens doing coke one day. And one of the queens saw me. And because they know I'm sober, they were like, oh, sorry, the other see this. And I was like, you can do coke. Like, I don't want you to feel like, girl, do your cocaine. Do, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not your teacher. <laughs> I'm not your mom. Do have your fun. Do your coke. I'm I'm just not going to do any coke with you. You know what I mean? People, I know people. I mean, there was a moment in time when people used to like be like, be like, oh, curlers, and they'd be like, oh, peppermint, oh, and like they think yeah, that comes. Hide your drugs, pep's coming. Everyone hide your drinks. New, I people have done. Let me shut up. I have been around every and within close proximity. I'm surprised <laughs> I haven't gotten high or start or anything myself. Um, You're st- you listen, life's not over. You're still young. There's always time. <laughs> that. <laughs> That's there's. I know I got time, but um, it's just really interesting to me because I just don't yeah. think that I have the kind of. I mean, I know that I carry myself with a certain. I respect myself in certain ways, and I don't necessarily let things loose all the time. But like, I don't. Do I seem like that much of a prude? Just because I'm I don't drink. Low key, you can suck a <laughs> like, dick. If well, you ask <laughs> if 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 I did coke, I would not want to do coke around you. I'd be like, but I'd be, I think if, that if, I, mm-hmm. if I did coke when Pep came in the room, I would be like, hide your coke. Everyone, put your bags away. Put your keys away. <laughs> clean off that mirror. Pep's here. And it's not it's not about judging. It's just like it feels like we'd be like, oh no, Pep's disappointed in us. And on that note, <laughs> uh, our next uh, story and sharing of story is Nathan, uh, who is a hairstylist at the world-renowned Benjamin Salon. And um, Nathan has a really interesting story, and I'm just really grateful to have Nathan's um, Nathan be so open with us about uh, their journey and... Um, yeah, I think you're going to like this one. Here we go. My name's Nathan. I'm originally from Massachusetts. I've lived in LA now for about 22 years. Professional hairstylist. I work in a salon and on set. I had a good childhood. I was raised by my mom. I'm from a biracial background. My mom is white. My dad is black. I grew up in a primarily white um, neighborhood or town, really. I was really the only person of color where I grew up, but it was a very safe place. Uh, I grew up in New England. I got out of there as soon as I could. When I was 18, I moved to LA and was like, peace. So I knew I was queer when I started puberty, I would say around like 12 years old. So it was like the early 90s and there weren't a lot of examples for me of queer people. There weren't a lot of examples of, because of where I grew up, of black people. I wasn't close with my dad's side of the family. So I had my first thought was that I was going to have to stay closeted till I was like middle age and I would have to find a beard and have kids and just, you know, 
maybe when my kids graduated high school and went off to college, I could then live my life authentically. I think when I finally went away to college, I went to art school. Um, actually, before I moved to LA, I went to art school in uh, Orange County. And it wasn't until I got out into the world and saw a more diverse place, not that Orange County is all that diverse, but being in art school, you know, just being out of what I knew my whole life um, kind of gave me the strength and the the courage to kind of like come to terms with like that wasn't, you know, that kind of big secret that I thought I was going to have to keep wasn't going to have to be the case, you know. Or when I came out was the first time I started dating a guy, which was around like 19 years old. And I remember I told my mom, I was like, oh, I met someone. I kept referring to them as someone, a person, this, that, and the other. And then I finally said he. And um, she was like, and then at the end of the conversation, she goes, did you say it, he? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, oh, that's great. You know, I'm glad you met someone. I mean, there were so many first at that time, you know, it was my first time living on my own first time, you know, um, I had an apartment, I had roommates, I, you know, party drugs were real prominent at that time. Um, that point, it was like the late 90s, early 2000s. And so like, Molly and ecstasy and raves. And, you know, so I was like every weekend, going to raves, um, a lot of hallucinogenics at that time. And then, you know, as far as my usage go, like marijuana has always been kind of at that time was always a part of the picture. So it was like, and then alcohol as well. I aspired to be like a party person, you know, that was like what validated me. I wanted to be edgy. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to like hit after hours. I wanted to be invited to every event and party and stuff like that. So as that, as that lifestyle progressed, so did the the kind of drugs that went along with that lifestyle. So alcohol and weed started in high school, um, ecstasy and hallucinogenics progress and, and also some hallucinogenics in high school um, continued on into college. Um, after moving to LA, um, cocaine came into the picture a lot more. Um, and then, you know, the substance that really kind of brought me to my knees and kind of made things apparent eventually that things were really unmanageable was crystal meth. I was living in Venice Beach at the time. Um, the way it was kind of introduced to me was um, I had a dealer that lived in my building. I lived right on the boardwalk. Um, in the building, it was all 20-something-year-olds who were, you know, dancers, DJs, artists, and this and that. And so I had a dealer that lived in the building, and I would um, oftentimes on the weekends buy cocaine with the intention to use it to not black out from alcohol when I was out partying. And, and she had sold me some cocaine, what I thought to be cocaine. And um, I remember I went into the bathroom that night at whatever club I was at, and I, I did a bump, and I, it burned. It like I'd never felt cocaine like that. And I remember I was up all night. I was um, like, just it was intense. It was like very intense. Um, that night after the club, I got home. I was I stayed up all night. I had just moved into this new unit in in this apartment and I had these cans of paint sitting there and I was like meaning to paint my apartment my bedroom for like months these cans of paint were sitting there and that night I was like let's paint my bedroom and and that night I painted the entire bedroom and I didn't eat and then I stayed up yet another night 
And I was like, what is this? And so I saw her uh, the following day and I was like, I don't know what that cocaine was, but it was like intense. Like it must've been pure. It must've been, you know, and I was like, I, I loved it. It was great. And she goes, oh, you know, she would take um, meth to keep her weight down and she would just put a little bit into some juice and whatever. And she goes, oh, baby, I think I gave you my medicine. And I was like, what do you mean your medicine? And she goes, um, I gave you quack instead. She called it quack because she's, she said that's how people acted on it. <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, I was like, okay, that's all, that's all I ever want. You know, forget the cocaine I want to use. I want to use that instead. And so, no, um, it felt, it was like, I was secretive about it, but I was also surrounded by a community of people that were, that used it as like a means to stay up late, to lose weight to keep their weight at a certain thing and as far as a uh, performance but it was not something that like was talked about openly like cocaine was or or um other drugs like that so i kind of picked up on the fact that it was like not cute to necessarily like discuss it in all um in all groups of people you know and um and there wasn't a lot of information out about it you know what what i knew about crystal meth at that time was like trailer park midwest you know um tweakers you know and that wasn't my experience you know and you know i also have to add like there's you know at that time it was very much um like i used it in a way that was like basically me and a group of friends if we were using it we would get together and we'd like make clothes or like paint our nails there's one girl who like colored in coloring books for hours and so there wasn't really a sexual component to it. It was more like we'd go, we'd start crafting and like we were busy with it. I would say it probably took about a good eight months before I became aware of the fact that it was like changing who I, you know, some of my core values. It didn't seem important to show up to work. It didn't seem important to pay my bills and somehow in, my addict mind at that time, it, it didn't seem like there would be consequences for those decisions. And so shortly, you know, it obviously didn't take long for consequences to arise, you know, um, eviction notices, fired from my job, um, and, and, you know, losing relationships and keeping secrets with people who weren't really a part of that lifestyle. Um, so uh, yeah, I would say within about eight months, it was like, okay, something's kind of, you know, things are starting to shift here with, with my life and my relationships and even my like self-esteem and my self-perception, you know. My mom found out and my mom called me and she said, and you know, I guess on my, on her own, my mom had like started researching crystal meth and da, 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 da. And um, so one day I get a phone call from my mom and she's like, there's a plane ticket waiting for you at LAX. I want you to get on the plane and come home. I knew, I guess subconsciously or maybe deep down, I felt like, yeah, something is, this is like shaky ground I'm on. I'm on thin ice and there's, this probably isn't sustainable and I should probably go home for a little bit and kind of regroup. And so I did. And so my mom, when I got home, this person who had always been so supportive of me, always been so, um, unconditionally loving of me and encouraging of me um after being home for a couple of days she like sat me down and she's like i don't recognize you she goes you are so angry you're so dark your energy is so dark and um and and i am really worried about you know your state of mind and that's kind of 
hearing it from my mom was kind of what kind of cemented the idea that like, yeah, things have changed and things have gotten kind of dark. My mom lives in a very small town. And so um, I didn't do anything 12-step related. I didn't go to a, a recovery center and I didn't get any of that kind of uh, foundation for what I now use as, uh, to maintain um, my sobriety. And so I, I flew back to LA after a month and a half and pretty much a day later I was back using. I think I had had a sense of clarity, just clearing in my head and, and having some um, some time with these substances out of my system. So I was um, able to kind of keep it at bay, um, but I was still drinking and smoking weed. Um, so yeah, I did use shortly after I got back, but I didn't use in the same way I did before I had left. Um, I had an awareness of trying to kind of maintain it. Probably about two to three years later, I moved to Miami and um, and Miami is like very much a, a party place. And at this point I had kind of become aware of like, or had become introduced to um, a more like seedy side, a less um, communal using and more um, like sexually driven using. Um, so eventually it stopped being about going out altogether. And it just started being about like these sex parties and using alone at home, using to maintain just to like get up in the morning, um, juggling that with, um, with Xanax and GHB and stuff like that. And so that like took hold and um, trying to escape from that. They have this term in, in um, AA or CMA, which is like creating a geographic, which I did at that time because I was like, again, like things are starting to get out of control. I felt like I burned a lot of bridges in Miami. And so um, I flew back, I moved back to LA. I was using, I was living out of my car, couch surfing, and I was on the apps all the time. And I was just basically jumping from house to house, to bed, to bed, to like have a place to be, you know? And um, I ended up at this, like, for lack of a better term, this trap house. And it was like this, um, it used to be a sober living, but it had been foreclosed on and the residents were still there, but there were no, there were no facilitators or anything. It was like not, you know, so it was just this basically abandoned house and there was no electricity, there was no plumbing. And so the place was filthy. Uh, every toilet in there was like overflowed with like, disgustingness. Um, I was like cleaning myself at like the shell station around the corner. This guy started like he, there was like this butcher knife and he started putting, he put his hand on the, the table and was like stabbing between his fingers and yelling at like, you know, people that weren't even there. And he's like, like swinging this knife around. And because it was so filthy in this environment, I had shaved at the shell station and just bacteria had gotten into like a razor burn and I had all these like sores on my face and I looked in the mirror and I was like, I didn't recognize myself. There was this chaotic situation happening with the guy and the knife. And I was like, what is happening? Like, how did I get here? And there was this other guy that was there using as well. And we both kind of looked at each other. We we're like, we got to get out of here. And he had um, told me about this place on um the east side in la it's called the at center in silver lake and he said they do um meetings there like 12-step meetings and i had never been to a 12-step meeting and he said i know a guy who goes to meetings there i'm gonna call him i i feel like we should like talk to him you know because we were both kind of like what you know we're both at our end you know we were both kind of and so i'm really 
grateful for that situation. Um, so he introduced me to this guy, his name's Glenn H. And um, Glenn brought me to my first meeting. He was my first sponsor. Um, he like looked at me and was like, you look like a mess, you know, and are you ready to get sober and get your life back? And I just started weeping, you know, um, this guy who brought me there, that was, so he dropped me off at his, at this guy Glenn's house. And that was the last I ever seen of him. It was like, he was like, I don't, you know, it was like, he was like a spirit <laughs> who just led me here. And I've never seen him since or seen him around the rooms or anything. I don't know where he came from. I don't know what his story is, but, um, Glenn, yeah, he introduced me to 12-step meetings. He um, And so that's kind of where things shifted. As of now, I'm 99 days sober. Pre-pandemic, I had had um, two and a half years of sobriety um, through working the steps, um, through going to meetings and, you know, everything that, that they suggest in the program, being of service. And, um, and I created a fellowship of friends that I, was, I felt supported by and I have this idea of uh, of a higher power, which is that I am supported in my path and I'm being looked after by a power greater than myself, that there is a destiny for me and that it is not, it is not in my best interest to try and micromanage and control and manipulate my life in the way that I did when I was using, um, you know, so it's, there's like a freedom I get from that, which is just that I know that I just need to show up for myself. I need to stay sober and I need to give back to the world in the best of my ability. And so taking my will back is me trying to manipulate, trying to um, move things in a direction, getting angry over things not going my way, um, maybe um, self-soothing in unhealthy ways, whether it's like overindulgence in sex and shopping and financial situations and lacking in my responsibility. So I had taken my will back. I had recently gotten out of a relationship. My career started getting bigger. I had gone to hair school. I was now working at the salon that was like my dream salon to be at. I was starting to get some work on set and stuff like that. And I was feeling very confident. And instead of continuing to give thanks and pray and stay humble and be diligent with my recovery, I decided that I wanted to just do things my way. You know, I was upset that my relationship had ended. I wanted to um, self-soothe in all those ways that I kind of mentioned before. I was detaching from um, my friends in sobriety. And, um, and so my first, my first thing that came up was I decided I wanted to smoke pot again, you know? And I, there were little things I see when I get that way, which is like, I'll like binge watch stuff. I will isolate. And so um, pre-pandemic, I decided that I was going to start smoking pot. Because lockdown happened, um, I was completely isolated, like no matter, you know, without a choice. And I'm smoking pot again. And then that led to me like drinking wine. And then after about a month and a half of being in... Um, in lockdown, I got back on the apps and I um, started like Grinder. At that time, was like the Wild West. There were people like selling, like overtly selling drugs, and you know, doing everything. And so, um, this kind of that kind of allure, which initially first brought me back in, which which initially got me into this lifestyle, which was like being bad, 
being a part of this underground subculture, which was like all these like drug fueled sex parties during like lockdown and stuff like that. And so it started with um, one time using with a old using friend and then it just built and pretty much for throughout the pandemic, I was relapsed. Um, I'm like a binge user. So I would like use for two weeks. I would clean up for a week and then I'd go back out and things started to open back up. I was like unable to stop and was having physical cravings every time I would try and stop. And, and mentally I felt like totally not in control of my feelings. And, um, and that was the, and at that time a year ago, this month was, um, or no, a year ago, last month was when I had decided that I had, I should go to treatment. And so I went to treatment. My last relapse, which was 99 days ago or a hundred days ago, I like, you know, once you work a program, once you have um, step work in your mind, once you have done self-work, like that kind of, that dialogue is always in your head. And so I had realized there were a few like components that I was not like leaning into. I was not working the steps again consistently. Um, I had been with my previous sponsor throughout my two and a half years of sobriety. And he was like, he, he was like my he like laid out step work. He was a step work nerd. He laid it out all for me so clearly. He we were very diligent, but I felt like I needed a different energy this time around. And it was like, it was just strictly something that I felt for myself. So I found a new sponsor. Um, we started working the steps again. Um, I needed some physical, um, I, I, I needed exercise, something to move my body and stuff like that, get me out of my head. And I needed to lean into prayer and meditation. And so, yes, I was going to meetings. Yes, I, you know, previously I had been going to meetings and this and that. But, you know, there would be times when I get out of a meeting and I'd go smoke weed or that weekend I would be partying or whatever. So I like in that last 100 days ago, I was like, OK, if I want to do this, I, I need to do this right. You know, I, I joined a boxing gym. I work with a new sponsor. I'm diligent about my step work. I picked up service commitments and I do things. Another practice that's really important to me is. Is doing my creativity, not just for work, um, but for like the joy of being creative, you know, that's part of my meditation. So. I do that as well. You know, that was really, uh, that, that I think that, that Nathan's story is uh, not completely uncommon. And a method of enemies has really kind of been an epidemic in the queer community. I remember when I, when I was uh, maybe like 20 years old, I was doing this play for this theater company about methamphetamines. And at the time it was such a, it was such a rural drug. Like people did, like people did meth, like in like North Dakota, Minnesota, in the woods, and somehow it it has really wiggled its way into the cities and ravaged the queer community. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is, you know, I had a um, I worked at it. I've worked at lots of nightclubs. Everybody knows, and I worked at one nightclub in particular where. Um, an employee there, a coworker of mine, I'm going to be super respectful and, and not give away any information unnecessarily, but a coworker of mine, um, was a little, was younger. Um, and you know, they would tell me about like 
different things that they did and like sex parties and stuff that they'd gone to, which I thought was really interesting. And then they um, would say, you know, how they went to this party and there it was an it was an MTV party. And I swear my 19. 19- Oh, like ass. the movie, like the like well, the music I was video. thinking like the TV show or like the TV channel, like oh MTV MTV party. I wanted to go to MTV party. He's like, that was not what kind of party this is. What and does that like, stand what do you for? Mean? It stands for Meth Truvada and Viagra. Oh, like in a bowl. He was like, they had a meth bowl, a Viagra bowl, and a Truvada bowl. So obviously, you know. You can draw whatever conclusions you want, but yeah, it was a sex party. I, yeah, I, th- I think I, I think I, I think I get <laughs> what they're, they're, they're not playing. And this was this was when um, Truvada <laughs> was uh, as prep was brand new, so this was probably like early two thousands, um, and that was news to me. I was like, okay, that is definitely wild for me. Um, but he had a good time, and so everything seemed normal. And he was like, oh, you know, like meth is totally not addicting. It's just like the synthetic drug. It's like totally cool. Like there's nothing. And he would, he would talk about having done it like the, every week when I would see him. And then he started isn't slipping wild, up in his Isn't that job. wild that, that, that if he's like, it's not addicting, but I am doing it every single week. That's that should what I'm be a telltale to sign. It wasn't. And he was like, he was like, there's no, there's no problem. It's like, you can stop at any time, but I just really enjoy it. Like that. And I've definitely heard that before. Um, and I was like, that is, if anything, that saying I can stop at any time is more of a, sin- a, a sign flag. to me than than doing it every week. Um, yeah. And so, you know, he had a hard time. He, you know, ended up needing to leave the state, um, you know, le- went going back home to um, another town to, ch- you know, kind of get it, everything together and go stay with family. Um, but he, you know, not before he he says he found himself waking he woke up one day in central park completely naked and he was like oh imagine the journey home and it, it, a lot of a lot of us new yorkers I, mean, I can't even imagine a lot of us new yorkers know that like a telltale sign of like it's a, it's a, it's a common trope almost where like someone does too many someone goes too crazy on drugs and they have to move back home. That's like a thing. A lot of times when I hear that someone moves back home, when someone moves back home from from New York City, I'm like, what happened? Like, what happened? It's fair to know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, he's, he's, uh, last I talked to him, he was in recovery and he he was, had several years uh, sober from, from meth. Uh, and I'm, I know good. I'm super chatty about this, but I want to talk a little bit more about it. Not him, but just meth. I've never done methamphetamines in my life, but I have mm-hmm. certainly seen people who come on the scene in New York City, nightlife scene, especially like, I remember seeing this one queen who was like, when I tell you she was everything. Text like, me the she name. She hit the scene, and I was like, there, like, people won't be able to handle this queen. She's so, ugh. Fierce, then, like, like fierce and lo- lovely, and put together was, and all that. Like she was funny, she was fierce, she was talented, she was. Bob, beautiful. if you don't text me this name right now, I will, I will text you, honey. She was Miss Thing. She what? When I tell everything. you everything, this girl, I was threatened. This girl was 
so put together. She could sew. She, Everything. She, made, look, she did hair. Her makeup was snap. Her body sickening, was sickening. Photo shoots. Our sickening photo shoot. Her performances were so like highbrow. Oh, it was so good. So potential, so highbrow. She had a, so much potential as a queen, as a young queen. She's probably like twenty one or something. I don't even yeah. mean, I don't mean that. Um, yeah, and she moved away. Yeah, I, I, I really. That was, and I saw the, the, the deterioration of energy. I'll put it yeah. that way. And then you see, because like one day you see her and she's like so put together. And the next time you see her, she just looks hollow. I don't know how to describe yeah, it. That's, like that's she got, really she has fun. on the makeup, but it's like she's looking at you, but she's looking through you. And she's just existing yeah. to exist as opposed to like, I don't even know how to describe it. Once you see someone get ravaged by drugs and they become like a shell yeah. of who they used to be, especially when it's someone who's so promising. I mean, we all watch, I don't know if she was, I don't know if Amy Winehouse was on meth, but we watched Amy Winehouse. I remember the first time I saw Amy Winehouse on TV. She was on, I think it was Letterman. And she was, I was like, oh my God, I'm obsessed. And then I just watched her like crumble. I have, there's a few the of my friends who, you know, I I don't, I don't, I, I was able to sort of wrap my head around, you know, like all the drugs, you know, and, and my relationship to those people who were using, uh, whether they were in recovery or they were still using or however they were dealing with it. and um, But the two that I have the most difficult time with are heroin and crystal meth because mm. they just seem to take over the minds of the individual. I had I had a dancer, and yeah, I know you know this story. Yeah. Um, I had a dancer So who, talented. So, like, just like one, one of, of the most talented, talented people, yeah. people I've ever met in my life. Handsome, beautiful, oh, funny, so beautiful, charming. ridiculous. It's not even. It's everyone like, loved him. He was one of the everyone loved. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, his behavior started to change. He started coming. It started to become, he started to become a little less professional after a while, uh, in my opinion. And then. Um, you know, he would do things like, just like he would travel with me from sometimes and like leave me, like abandon me, like with no warning or notice, like at an airport with luggage and like, he'd be hours away or, you know, like, just like, just really in my mind, dropping the ball. And I, I needed help with something and I was traveling down to DC. I'll never forget. It was the day that uh, they were hearing, hearing, um, I think it was title seven, protections oh, yeah, I remember at that. the Supreme Court. And I ha- what Supreme Court is not something that you can just like go to. Um and so they had some a hearing they were having hearings at the Supreme Court for uh protections, workplace protections for LGBTQ folks um and women and you know all types of minorities, but it was Title VII protections that included LGBT folks. Um and I was asked to go with uh, and accompany folks from the ACLU while they were arguing uh, the case. And I was in the gallery, I don't know what you call it, the room, the courtroom. I was like there. Um, And that was like, I was really excited about that. But anyway, in order to, they only give like a limited amount of seats for like civilians, like just anybody to come. And so you have to get there like sometimes days before and and like wait in line and go. And I had work the day before, so I wasn't able to do it. So I asked him to go and hold my spot. That was a normal and thing. And importantly, I remember you, you said you, you paid him too to do this too. 
I paid him. I offered him lots of money to go and sit. Plenty of money for an overnight. You know, you could get several uh, hotel rooms out of this. But I needed him to go and wait overnight. And I bought him a sleeping bag. I was like, get some food. And you're going to be next to some people who are also like-minded, probably. And you'll be able to, like, have some camaraderie. And I'm sure it'll be, like, an experience. But you just go and sit in the thing. And so I asked him to go and wait for me. He traveled down. He did travel down. I knew that. And uh, to where to D.C., obviously, versus where the Supreme Court is. And, honey, if I, I tell you, he disappeared for nine hours. Because you gave and him the money. You gave him the money. Well, I asked him. I found I was able to find somebody else to do the thing. So I ended up being able to go to the to the court case. But did you give him the money up front? On my way in there, he was like texting me. Suddenly he had he was able to he suddenly he popped up and was chatty and was like communicative. None of the time, not during the hours that I was texting him or messaging Mm -hmm. him, did he mention nothing. And so then he was like, well, if you don't pay me this money, I'm going to get online and drag you on the Internet and tell people that you don't pay or you you like you don't pay and that you're all pulling games and stuff and i was like so angry and i was like wild i was like okay i was like i'm gonna get if i give you this money believe me and i've never said this to any other person before or since i've i don't usually deal in absolutes but i was like if i give you this money i will never talk to you again you are dead to me and i so Ooh. sad that I had to say that, but I had you to. You have to set a boundary sometimes. Yeah, sometimes I had you to have set to set a boundary major boundary, and I haven't spoken to him since he reaches out to me still. But if you are listening, you, I hope you're enjoying, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, you know, and, and we weren't able to have a conversation about his, um, his, what I suspected as his, as his drug use. I never saw him using drugs mm-hmm. in front of me, but it, his, his behavior and his mind clearly were different than they had been. And uh, his his behavior was pretty much copycat, cookie cutter of all the other people who I know had been yeah. using meth before that. And so I, I didn't do an intervention or anything with him, but at that point he was extorting me and it wasn't even worth it because he didn't do the job. And so, yeah, that was tough. I feel you. So I hope that you're living life well and I hope that you can, uh, I hope that you've gotten help. And because I really, I really, I really miss him a lot. And I haven't talked to him in a long, long time. And if you are out there and you are struggling with addiction or if you're struggling with any sort of, and, and it's not just meth. I mean, some people can drink alcohol. Some people cannot drink alcohol. Some people can do a bump of coke. Some people cannot do a bump of coke. Most people I know cannot do meth. That, that, that one, that one seems to be a pretty, a they pretty hard one. It. They can do it. Uh, they can't this stop is, doing it. Okay. One more thing. One more. I'm sorry. This is a long episode, but I'm going to say it. Um, uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting, and I, I think part of the reason why meth has slipped through the cracks, that's when I say what I'm going to say, it's going to sound like I meant to say it like that, um, is because I think so many people associate crystal meth use with sex. And uh, especially in the queer community. And for the longest time, that's really the only context that I would hear about crystal meth was in the context of sex. People thinking that they're having this wild sex all night long on this drug. Um, and so I think that's part of the reason why there's maybe a little more stigma around talking about it because it goes with these sexual uh, activities that people aren't necessarily talking about in in mixed company. And so I was really, I heard about it 
pretty much strictly, in my experience in New York City, as something that gay men were doing with their partners. But then one of the, I one of the when I realized that it was becoming extremely pervasive um, was when I would see, and this is you know people who probably had formerly identified with uh, as being gay men or were having sex with with gay men, but at a certain point trans- medically transitioned um, and came into a realization that they're trans. Mm-hmm. Some of them brought that with them as well the meth use with them. And many of the the girls that I know, a lot of whom who I love and adore who are sex workers, which is a very valid form of work, uh, but sometimes, um, you know, can come with yeah. some party favors and things like that and drug use. Uh, we're introducing crystal meth use as a sex drug to so many straight guys. And so, you know, when if you're in the queer community, you hear about like the use of poppers. That's like par for the course. If you're in the queer community, you hear about poppers. That's not something that you usually hear straight guys talking about. You know what I mean? Yeah. The same thing with crystal meth in my experience, which was really interesting to me because now there are these like 100% straight guys who don't really have a connection to the queer community, but using crystal meth and poppers because they're having sex with trans women who are mm-hmm. introducing it to them. Um, and I think that's really just, I can't wrap my head around it. I'm still trying to figure out. It shows out. how fast crystal meth can really spread throughout communities. I mean, it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't even a queer drug. It wasn't, when I started finding out that black folks student crystal meth, I was like, what black like, folks student crystal meth now? This is wild. Cause I'd never like, heard about it. Because Christmas never. was like a was was a this kind of drug for a long time. When I heard that, I was like, "Black folks doing meth now? This is crazy! It's cra- it, 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 it can really spread throughout communities very, very. It fast. really can. And I don't know well, that we have the the um. I mean, of course, there are groups like CA and and uh, AA, and we're gonna list some something at the resources, end of the episode, some resources. resources for you. If you all look in the description of this episode on YouTube and on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, you can see some resources for you need to. If you're having any problems with uh, alcohol and drug abuse, there are resources. No matter where you are in the world, there are resources, I promise. There absolutely are. And there are definitely people who you may not know it are thinking about you even at this very moment and are um, hoping for your success if you are dealing and if you are in recovery right now. And so with that being said, uh, this was a very deep episode, probably a little longer than usual, but we want to give a very, very, very special thanks to our entire production team, Charlene Westbrook, Tracy Marquez, Amelia Rittaller, and Corey Nixon. Uh, music by La Femme Bear. Thank you so much. See you next time.